Hi there, and welcome back to The Escape Pod. I'm Jason Jenner, and this week, we have the second part of my conversation with Peter Devlin at Axis Studios, Glasgow. Peter and I get into the real detail on cloud versus on-premise rendering, costs and setting client expectations, as well as COVID-19 silver linings. I hope you enjoy it. So then let, let's um, let's get into this, this cloud v on-prem uh, discussion, because I think this is sure. quite interesting. Um, again, you know, you said a minute ago, render farm never goes quiet. So, you know, I've had it put to me by you know, a couple of studio partners in, you know, in, 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 in the London sector, for example, you know, big, big studios, we're talking, you know, 500 plus artists. Um, oh, I think then, I know who you're talking about. Well, you may I know, you, you, you may know some of them. Yeah. There's, there's three or four obvious players. And I think, you know, they, they all have slightly different views, but I think I've heard, you know, I've heard it said that, you know, your, your render farm, one, one analysis was that your render farm needed to be at 80% utility for it to be, financially or cost cost competitive against using cloud resources um you know you you've spoken there to the fact that perhaps your render farm is is, is never really idle um and you know you've also spoken about really sizable jobs you know really big render throughput um and i'm just really interested in in your you know you've 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 said you have done some cloud rendering so it's not it's not like you don't do it but there's there's a there's a much heavier emphasis on on-premise um and i'm really interested to understand how you what your rationale is there and, and how you feel about the costs uh, and also some of the infrastructure implications of um, of cloud rendering because there's there's the let's talk about the cost side perhaps first but then there's you know if you're going to if you're going to render at scale in in Google or in AWS for example mm-hmm. you've got to have a way of those render nodes referencing the assets in your central storage repository efficiently Correct. which is a very well, for, for for smaller, less equipped studios than you, is a very complicated process. So, I'd be really interested to hear what you've got to say about that stuff, really. Okay, um, let me give some historical context to the discussion so that um, it makes sense to those who haven't been involved with Axis. Like I know you have been peripherally, so you probably understand some of this. Yeah. Um, Axis, going back almost five or six years. Um, Axis took advantage of a government initiative uh, to, in effect, help fund us being able to repurpose or adapt our pipeline such that we could render in the cloud before the the tools were necessarily there in support of this. Um, And we partnered with a company called Thinkbox, uh, who produced software called Deadline. Yeah, we know Uh, them well. Yeah. So a number of the features that are now in Deadline uh, came about as a consequence of that partnership. So we've been at the cloud render bleeding edge for a number of years now. Right. Um, We have successfully adapted our pipeline such that we can push things out to the cloud on demand and then bring it back um, with a reasonable amount of work. Um, it can be turned on relatively quickly, it can be done on demand, and it can be done at a per shot level or a per project level from our render controller. The challenges with cloud rendering are not so... There are technical challenges, but there are other ones that are not so technical um, around about managing obvious stuff that should really have been solved quite some time ago. Uh-huh. And by that, I mean storage. 
um, licensing of your renderer or the render software that you might actually be using. Yeah. Um, infrastructure like bandwidth. And then the hard, the real hard ones, managing the artist expectation. Okay. And managing the client expectation. Um, so 80% was the number you quoted uh, when you you laid that particular yeah, I've heard on that the said. table there. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that in Axis, we probably operate at about 85%, 90% utilization mark. The reason for this uh, is to some extent uh, a financial thing. If you're investing in, let's say, half a million pounds worth of render kit and you want to make sure you get a good return for your money, um, you want to make sure that it's not sitting idle. If it's sitting idle, it's on your books. So it's the, it's the classic CapEx argument against which, if you're looking at a cloud model, you would place the OpEx discussion of, well, you only pay for what you use. The challenge in that is getting, a f it comes at both ends. And the challenge is essentially properly defining the costs for each CapEx versus OpEx model. Yeah. In an operational expenditure context, quite often you look at the costs of OpEx, but without including the fact that you might need a resilient 10 gig pipe if you're rendering out on the cloud and that that needs to be costed over a period. And then you look at bandwidth charges and you look at tools and pipeline development costs associated with making your your model robust enough to be used in a production-facing context, because believe it or not, production-facing sometimes means things will go wrong and you have to do it in a hurry and you can't afford to have to do fixes on the fly. Um, yeah, so, so the, the true costs, yeah. The true cost that. of an OPEX model is not yeah. what you think it is. No. <clears throat> and then the flip side of that is when you look at the CapEx model, uh, the CapEx model, you have to be sure that you're factoring in everything, which can include things like, can you logically, can you realistically get a rack in place quickly? And can you, in a sense of logic for a project, make sure that that rack worth of kit is being used at a reasonable utilization level? Uh, where do you have multiple projects, as Axis does? Um, we, in effect, look at render capacity planning on a week-to-week -week basis and give allocations of the farm, a percentage of the farm, or a number of nodes, notionally to each project. But if you have a good render management tool like Deadline, you can adjust that number on the fly. Or if a project is not using its render allocation, the spare resource can be picked up and used by another project. So if you have something that will adjust the the allocation and utilization of the farm rather than simply ring fence it and not share it out, then you can make a better use of the CapEx model. For us, that's the first that's the first part of the discussion around about um, rendering in-house versus rendering on the cloud. Uh, the second part. Uh, in relation to artist expectations, for example. Um, let's take a step back from reality and start thinking about an ideal world. In an ideal world, an artist will have 10 times the number of render nodes available to him that he actually needs. 
And this is not to disparage artists. I don't mean I don't mean to disparage artists, but it's going to sound like I'm doing it. Um, what will happen in that ideal world scenario is that artist will not produce ten times the amount of work. The artist will not produce ten times the quality of the work. What he will do is he will iterate ten times more. Yeah. And yes. broadly speaking, it might get a better piece at the end, but it won't be objectively ten times better. Or time optimized necessarily. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So the ideal scenario is to have loads of render capacity on tap, but how do you make sure that it's used wisely, correctly, whatever term you want to use? There? Yeah, resource management, yeah. That's the real challenge, and that's the one that is almost undefeatable because you do not want to limit artists submitting iterations to the farm if they are genuinely looking to produce some work. So it makes sense in a CapEx model to broadly ring fence by project. But if a project isn't using it, their resource gets used elsewhere. Or if a project needs some, then you can rob it from another project. And only when you really, really hit the 100% utilization buffers, then go out to a cloud Yes, model. and I mean, you don't really want lots of iterative work going through the cloud model, do you, the OpEx model? Correct. Um, so what we do, uh, we, and I'm sure other studios do this well, or they do a variation of this, we tend to use control iterations by doing low-quality iterations to begin with, keep them on-house, on-site for fast turnaround. That in-house fast iteration means that you do the artists in theory deal with 80% of their quality problems in-house, and then they can focus on the final 20% polish. And if you really do have a challenge in delivering the HQRs on a deadline, then you can look at sending the final one with no tech fixes, the final piece into the cloud. But you need you need to have a pipeline that supports that. You need to have the tools. Yeah, that support and, that. and just tracking back to your um, your description of the the development work that you did with Thinkbox and Deadline um, to be, you know, to use a a, a care worn term, cloud ready. Um, did, did that mean or does that mean that you have all of the storage infrastructure um, in place that you can drag frames from your central storage in-house into cloud resources if you need to? You're, you're not, you know, you haven't got to kind of, um, you haven't got to, to weather the whole complexity of, of, of re-engineering the, the infrastructure to do that. That's already in place. Is that what you're saying? We have a, a good chunk of experience in dealing with some of the complexities. Storage is not the real complexity, although we are finding examples of that recently, uh, where changes to the cloud-based storage infrastructure have a big difference on the results. Okay. But we're finding that the storage isn't the complexity. The complexity is in identifying all the components that make up a shot where an artist might be working in a tool like Houdini where they can adapt on the fly and to some extent slightly go off pipe. You have to have a really well-defined pipeline and the ability to wrap up 
a shot in its entirety for pushing out into the right, cloud. Right, okay. So it's about making sure that all of the file dependencies and every single component piece of that of that render is, you know, is effectively passed correctly to yes. the, the, the external cloud render node is, is essentially what you're saying. Yeah. And yeah. To, to some extent, we have solved that by a roundabout route. And that's because we are... We Access traditionally started out as a, as a Windows house. Everything uh -huh. we did was on Windows, uh, which is quite unusual in our in our industry. Certainly for the larger players, it's quite unusual. You find that most most of the big players are Linux houses. Um, we have slowly been migrating towards becoming Linux at the desktop. But as part of our um, initial development work on being cloud-centric um, or cloud-aware, if you will, um, it was... It was a thing that we, a milestone that we set down that we wanted to transition our render kit from running Windows to running Linux. Um, we yielded about 20% more out of each render node just by changing the operating system. Um, but because we've done that, um, we are kind of OS agnostic and we already have the ability to package up a shot that's a, 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 built in a Windows context and rendered in a Linux context. So we've already got a lot of that parceling done for us. But the key thing from a pipeline perspective is not the, can you parcel the shot out, uh, parcel the shot up and send it out? But what else happens in your pipeline alongside rendering? So for us, that means when a render is completed, thumbnails go up to shotgun, how do you do that? How do you know the render job is done? Who marks it for completion? Who marks it for review? There's a whole yeah. range of other things in a pipeline context that happen beyond just can you execute a render on a CPU and a set amount of RAM in a particular storage yeah, location? No, absolutely. I mean, um, so you're, yeah, you're describing complexities on the pipeline side there. I guess the other question I had was, um, which is interesting, the other question I had was, have you got to do anything to your storage infrastructure? So I think I think I'm right in thinking that you guys use your your primary storage is, or it certainly was EMC Isilon, yeah. um, and you're not alone in that. I mean, there's 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 three or four of the really really big VFX um, studios in in London that use that as their central storage also. So it's it's not an unusual choice. Um, but I mean, yeah. at scale, I'm aware of the fact that some of those studios have to use other bits of caching technology um, for an on-premise farm, often even actually, not just a cloud farm. Um, things like Avia um, uh, or other forms of gateway provision to get to effectively be able to be able to deliver the render frames fast enough to the to the farm. I mean, what what's your setup in that regard? Have you got anything at play like that, or are you managing it differently? Okay, let's let's have a look at the storage context then. Yes, we are Isolod users. We've been Isolon users now for eight years. Um, two years ago, I did a, a an audio video interview with an online magazine, and I confidently told the chap in a conversation like we're having here that this new Isolon kit I'm buying in 2018 will be probably be the last time that I ever buy storage that costs a six or seven figure sum. Yeah. Um, yeah, it didn't, didn't work out like that, did it? <laughs> um, we use Isilon for a number of, number of reasons in-house, um, one of which is it's pretty much bulletproof. Mm -hmm. um, we have literally had major players come to us uh, with projects 
And as part of their due diligence, they want to inspect our pipeline and understand what we're doing in terms of networking and everything. And then they say to us, what are you using for storage? And we say Isilon. And then the conversation just stops there because it's so robust um, and works so well for what we do. However, there are challenges with Isilon as well, and you've correctly identified one of them. If you have not built your network infrastructure with your render software in mind yeah and you just simply point all your render kit at your primary storage bucket you can expect a real fun time Uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) you can have um total gridlock on your storage Uh, you can have users who can't get to the storage because the network's gridlocked you can have a render farm that underperforms um, so you have to have a every you problem to, going basically. Yeah, yeah. You <laughs> yeah. have to have your you have to have your wits about you when you do this. Isilon works particularly well for us because at the scale where we are working with, and we're round about the petabyte scale in terms mm-hmm. of central storage. So we're not that large, relatively speaking. Um, round about the petabyte scale, standard off-the-shelf Isilon nodes bring way more performance and throughput than we currently can demand from our render farm. So we haven't hit that bottleneck scenario yet. In cloud context, however, we have hit storage bottlenecks. Right. Um, We've been dealing with AWS. We don't use Azure, but we've been dealing with AWS. And in the projects which we have either burst out to the cloud or done because we have been so busy as a studio, and this is a context that might make people groan when they hear it, but as a studio, Access has been turning away work for about two years because Mm -hmm. we haven't got sufficient people, capacity, everything um, to deal with the work. We are in a great position that we just cannot service all the work that we're being asked to. Um, but from a capacity perspective, sometimes we've had to burst out to the cloud to make sure that we get you can deliver, yeah, get a delivery done, yeah. Um, where we have done that, one of the key performance lessons learned has been that your choice of storage in a cloud context can have a massive impact on your bill at the end of the day, and it's a counterintuitive learning experience. Provisioning the fastest storage possible in a cloud context will save you a fortune on CPU compute. Yes. Certainly okay. for, our, for our pipeline, that's what we have found. That right. is very interesting. Okay. Um, and that's, you've, you've, you learned that the hard way by the sounds of it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In terms, of, in terms of having slowdowns. Yeah. Okay. And I, because actually, I think Isilon, you know, as you say, is pretty much bomb proof and, and a well established, you know, central storage solution for companies of your profile, actually. But um, it, it has, it's not as flexible for running its file system in the cloud as some newer generation products, is it? So there are some limitations in that regard, I think. Go on, name those newer generation products. <laughs> well, uh, you know, for example, there there is something called Cumulo, which I know yes. was conceived much more to be a, a, an inheritor of the mantle of the OneFS file system and um, and potentially has a, has a better 
um, or a more flexible cloud application. But uh, it's, uh, from your wicked laugh there, it sounds like you might have a slightly different view of that. So I'm interested in your opinion, actually. <laughs> we looked at Cumulo probably coming up for about two years ago now. Yeah. Um, they hadn't really established a footprint in the UK at the time. And I, I, I think that they're in the process of doing so. Um, there are a lot of advantages to something like Cumulo where you can get real-time stats and reportage and so forth. But at the time when we wanted it, um, we were looking at taking a strategic decision of do we replace Isilon. Um, Axis uses Isilon at four locations. Uh, we have Glasgow, Bristol, and London studios, each with their own Isilon cluster. And we also have a fourth Isilon cluster, which is co-located in Edinburgh as a backup disaster recovery business continuity site. Isilon does pretty well in that scenario. It's it's robust and it's reliable. However, two years ago, we looked very closely at the strategic idea of removing Isilon from the business and replacing it with something which was a bit more feature rich, at least in theory. Yeah. Um, at the time, what we found sadly is that Cumulo wasn't what we were looking for. It still had it still had limited had limitations which Isilon had solved. Mm -hmm. um, it had solved some of the things that Isilon didn't do, um, but it wasn't the right fit for us as the default storage bucket for the studios in house. Um, and that was a bit of a disappointment to me um, because I really had high hopes for it. It does have options. Cumulo does have options for storage in the cloud. And I believe Isilon are playing catch up on that. They now have the Isilon product available in the cloud in a limited fashion. But we are not yet in a position to say Cumulo is a suitable competitor for Isilon in what we do. I believe as, an, as a particular niche product, it would be great, for example, effects renders, as in high quality simulations and effects passes. I don't mean VFX in a kind of 2D comp, I mean proper volumetrics and simulations. Uh, the kind of performance you get at Cumulo systems is quite capable of outstripping what you can do in Isilon unless you spend huge amounts of money. Yes, yeah. And that's where tools like filers you referenced Avir, that's where they start to have some potential usage. But in you're the not workflow. using anything like Avir currently, by the sounds of it. No, we're not. Yeah. Um, we don't have a requirement for it. At the time we were looking at Cumulo, we revisited Avir again as mm -hmm. a potential um, render edge, but only for dealing with, um, again, volumetrics and simulations and so forth. Yeah. Um, for people listening, sim the, the kind of simulations we're talking about are destruction effects, fire, smoke, high quality water effects, things that require a lot of compute time, generate large, large volumes of data and need to be accessed over and over frequently and fast uh, during a render cycle or indeed by an artist. You can, if you get your, if you run an application like Houdini and drag the slider too far in the wrong direction, when you're doing a simulation, you can hit limitations on Isilon systems. And that's the point where you look to have some form of higher performing edge type scenario specifically yeah. for that piece. Um, it hasn't been necessary for us as yet. Um, although we have, had some, we have had some howlers happen. 
but I can see it changing at yeah, some point. Yeah, because it's certainly true that um, the the um, the three or four big VFX houses in London that I didn't name, um, you know, most of them are using finers like Avia um, to accelerate uh, central storage, if, if particularly if it's a nice one, actually. But um, yeah, I just wondered if you see a tipping point in the kind of work that you're doing where that might become a requirement. Um, and it sounds like you you have one eye on that already. Yeah, I mean, I can give you some, I can give you some thoughts on this based on, let's say, the last couple of years of Axis working on jobs which have gone from, by default, two K frame sizes. Um, now four K is fairly common in our industry, um, if not yeah. default. Yeah. Um, we have over the last two or three years worked on projects at resolutions as high as 8K and 11.5K. Goodness. Um, and within those, we're talking about 60 frames a second mm -hmm. and stereoscopic. So you can Monster reach. Jobs. Yeah, yeah. You can reach mm. the point where your required frame rate just for playback for one user can theoretically exceed what you can do with box standards network kit in your workstation yeah um can kill the network edge on which 40 artists are sitting and can quite reasonably go beyond what a, a normal isolon cluster can deliver and i would imagine that's the kind of scenario that you're talking about for these larger yeah scale i think players. so yeah i think um as you say you get into that territory you're looking at sort of speeds required in you know in in the areas of 3.5 gigabytes and higher to get you know a full uncompressed 4k um 30 frames a second delivery to a to a user um which is you know chunky that's the tipping point where you do start looking at uh things like um an avir or mm -hmm. an isilon a series cluster which is effectively an isilon head end of year uh, yes. for delivering things at the speed that you want them delivered at. Yeah, it's yeah. a fundamental rewiring of the infrastructure, really, isn't it, I suppose, at that level? Yeah. Yeah, for us... Or a calorie, I guess, yeah. For us, we're looking at then going to say to someone, well, multiple 40-gig aggregated fiber interfaces on the network and... You know, the kind of delivery mechanisms that you're looking at there. We're kind of almost taking a step back maybe 15, 20 years to the argument of a storage area network versus network attached storage versus what are you doing? Um, I think there are still there are still options available, not necessarily from Isilon or Cumulo or even Avir, but there are other other options where you're basically placing your RAM on the network and you're building a huge RAM cache for this kind of thing. Uh, that sits in your your uh, server room, and in effect, to yes. play it back, someone is connecting to that massive RAM cache and playing back. But these are really, really specialist things, and they don't really have a they don't really yet have a footprint for us uh, in in the business, in the core business. It's still very no, much we're at the outer edge of the envelope, there, aren't us. we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's 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 really pushing it. Um, stepping back from that a little bit, Peter, you said something enigmatic a few minutes ago when we were talking about cloud rendering 
um, there were two or three things you identified, one of which you said we'll come back to was setting a client expectation. I'm just interested uh, in uh, encouraging you to elaborate on that a little bit. Bear in mind again that access, particularly in Glasgow, isn't necessarily uh, an FX house, VFX house uh, as such. Yeah. But there are different client expectations when you're working in the CG world. Um, and one of those in a kind of effects model that might be more familiar to your clients in Soho is the idea that live action footage gets shot and then delivered for effects layover and compositing and then delivery back to the client. And it's quite common in live action shoots for a director to go off script and where you might bid on, let's say, 100 shots of a length of whatever, mm-hmm. you find that you're getting 120 shots of variant length and so forth. And it can be quite difficult in a client-facing context to say to a client, well, you've given me 20% more than I bid for. Can you give me 20% more in terms of the Money. budget? because what the client will then say in that scenario is but you know you bid for to do this work i want you to do this work that's a challenge so there's a client expectation model and if you want to look at it through a glass is half empty type of lens then you can look at the failures of companies like i guess pixamondo digital digital domain all these major companies that have folded because they've underbid on large-scale film work. That's not to say that we are operating at that level, but there is a client expectation management thing where you have to look at what does it actually cost to render and iterate? And at some point, that cost of rendering or iterating or clients making changes to the script or can we just have another gigantic monster in there, please? just to make it look a little bit more punchy, that you have to pass these costs on to the client. And in some ways, the cloud model actually allows you to do that because where we have had clients who have said to us, we want to do this amount of work, and we say, well, we're going to do this in the cloud. Here's what the render costs will be on the bid. And then the client comes back and says, we're making this change. No client likes to see contingency in a production budget but generally there is some there. So you can yeah. use up the contingency for a cloud render. But if there's a fairly significant change that leads to a knock-on cloud cost, you actually can point that cost out quite easily and pass it back to the client. You can say, yeah, if and, we and do this, this is going to cost this amount extra. On and that's a, new, that's a new thing, really, isn't it? Because actually... You know, if you if you wind back to pre cloud, you know, pre pre the days of any any regular use of cloud render, that scenario you've just described would have meant that you or another studio like you would have said, "Oh, okay, well, we've now got to render all the changes they've asked for on the same render farm that we had yesterday." Yep. And we've still got the same deadline. Yep. How do we do it? And then maybe uh, a, a VFX producer. Or somebody looks at that and says, we've got two choices. We can run the risk of not delivering on time, or we can order some physical render very quickly from one of our suppliers, get that in, beef up the render file. Would that be a supplier escape by any chance? 
Could be, Peter. Could be. It's been known, you know. Yep. I think. <laughs> I think. But I guess where I was going with that was it was very nice for us when people did that, and 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 you have been among the people that have done it, and you would get these incremental orders of render kit. Um, but the interesting thing there is that sometimes you get the sense that what was happening was that, you know, that job's profitability was going to be slightly reduced by that because, yep. you know, someone had made a call that. Hey, look, there's a risk we might not get this done unless we buy another 10 render nodes. Let's just buy the 10 render nodes and be done with it. Get the job done. We'll make a little bit less money. Hey, ho, where everybody's happy, you know. <clears throat> but um, culturally, it was much more difficult, as you say. It's much more difficult to assign the true cost of that additional render to the job, whereas actually it's far more granular in a cloud context, isn't it? So you can say, as you have just pointed out, those changes will mean these costs in AWS, Google, whatever. Um, but do you think clients are adjusting to that, to that cultural shift in the way those things are presented? I think clients are being presented with it now where they weren't previously. And in some cases, it's a bit of an eye opener for them. I don't know yeah. how other studios operate. Um, some studios may absorb render costs as part of an overhead not presented to clients, but with the use of cloud type facilities, there is an opportunity to present that cost back to the client in quite a clear, quite a clear manner. Um, we have had clients who have approached us and said, we have this huge amount of work. We go for it, we bid it. The client has come back and said, for example, oh, well, one of your competitors has bid that this will cost 200,000 pounds in a cloud context. What do you think it will cost? And we go, okay, right, we might see, we might pick a number, maybe 200, may not. Uh, we get into the, the conversations, we start the work, and then we go back to the client uh, when they've iterated their script and say, well, that 200,000 pounds that we bid initially is now no longer enough to accommodate your script. So you either have to change your ambitions or find extra budget or change the deadline, something to make it work. And I think in, it, that happens not just in Renderland, you know, where you're doing classical render, that happens at every kind of media project. We've had it happen in games projects. Um, we've had a producer telling a games client for about nine months that their script changes were way beyond budget. Client doesn't listen. And then eventually we had to send a delegation to go and speak to the client and it point out to them that they needed to chop 40% of the script um, or adjust their deadline by nine months. Uh, nine months. Yeah, nine months. And yeah. they'll sign off on the new budget within two weeks. Otherwise, their project was falling apart. Um, yeah. Clients clients only hear what we tell them. And if we are always on, a, if we are always in the back, not necessarily the back foot, but if we are always in a kind of defensive mode and wanting to conceal bad news from the client, um, they're never really going to understand the real cost of can I just redo that shot with that camera from that position? Can we just make it fire and smoke instead of a plain old white background? Yeah. Those, those costs are not really that tangible from a client perspective. Um, in a cloud render context, a lot of those costs become visible. Yes, a whole lot yes. Quicker. I mean, it has that advantage, doesn't it? Although, as you say, there are other cost implications of cloud rendering that means it, it mean it may well be disadvantageous in other areas. But um it's um it's a very interesting um balance actually between you know all those you know interconnected um technical and commercial points really that you've described um it's sort of fascinating stuff thank you very I, much 
I do wonder how many people use cloud render in a planned context currently. Um, yeah. I guess it's a if there was an audience, it'd be a question for the audience whether it's planned cloud render context, whether it's emergency cloud render context, whether it's that get out of jail card, um, how, it, how it is actually used. Um, at, yes, the moment, uh, at the moment, most cloud renders, certainly spot instances, instances on demand on AWS and so forth, they tend to be, in, in effect, as clients, we are buying excess compute cycles from Amazon and yeah. using them to render our stuff. Agreed, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. It's, it's seen as a top-up thing, and it's certainly how we look at it. We want to own up to the 95th percentile of our render capacity and then only beyond the 95th percentile we want to burst out to the cloud yeah i think we're seeing that mirrored with other studios we work with i think you you find that um i mean there's always there's always the there's always the exemption job there's always the job that's so big there's no other way of rendering it i can think of a big feature film job with one of our big um studio partners who you know they there was no other way of rendering that job and i think you know a lot of the um initial early stage render would have been on premise and then it, it, it became more and more cloud heavy as the job went on. But um, but I think generally I hear what you're saying kind of mirrored and I think where we see um, some of our colleagues in visual effects rendering exclusively on the cloud, those that, that have been doing that for any length of time that I've spoken to have expressed reservations about it now in terms of its cost implications and want to wind back to, you know, at best a sort of, 50-50 hybrid, but probably more likely much more of a sort of 80-20 split in terms of, you know, the twenty the, the last 20% burstable being um being a you know an external resource in the cloud. But which is I think what you're saying really, which is, you know, I think is 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 good sense, but it does I mean you are a good planner generally, I think, but it does it does require an awful lot of careful planning technically to to make that work and keep control of the costs. Yeah. Um, I think yeah, I think it's a fair thing. Um, we shouldn't assume that everybody can plan in the same way. And sometimes, when you take on a contract, you're not able to plan it as obsessively as you want to. But even if you can't, um, there is a wee opportunity for you to put in that contingency figure or the likelihood of things um, going off the rails, and and having a game plan for that. Um, but I, it's interesting that I hear you say about clients wanting to move back from cloud rendering to on-premise. That's, that's, I find that intriguing. Yeah, well, it validates your approach somewhat, doesn't it? And also, it's, it, it is true. I mean, I, could, I, I, I won't because we are discreet in our podcast uh, discussions, but I, I could name you know, a good handful of, of our studio partners that have said that to me or have you know, expressed that, that desire. So I think... You know, it's um, it's about control of costs um, and about managing projects better. Um, um, you know, actually, somebody said something interesting to me the other day as well. I we, we have a storage partner that does a lot of work on the corporate sort of non-media and entertainment side, and this engineer made the observation. You know, you can one can interrogate this for its, you know, for how substantial it is, but. You know, this engineer I was speaking to made the observation that, you know, in, in sort of corporate worlds, you know, uh, corporate style businesses, they've been doing stuff in the cloud for years because, you know, the, the data sets are lighter weight and, you know, running a, a regular office based workstation or storage provision in, in, in a cloud environment in those sectors is not as 
you know, it's only very recently that the necessary, you know, network bandwidth and, and capabilities have been there for us to be able to do that in media and entertainment. It's been available a lot, lot, a lot longer in, you know, in banks and law firms and various other, yeah. you know, non-media uh, enterprises. And he was saying that a lot of those sectors have come to withdraw from fully cloud provision or fully cloud hosting because, again, they've just found that when they take a three or five year view of what they're paying, you know, it's actually really very expensive compared to actually if they had an internal, you know, IT team and, and, and hosted a lot of that themselves. Um you know, which is an interesting non-media comparison. You know, which we don't often go there very much in these discussions. But um, it does it does speak to the costs of generally. You know, is it is it does it come down to being as simple as you know it's more expensive to buy your house uh, to rent your house than it is to buy it. You know, um, you know, and and, w- and where you can you'll, you'll you'll go you'll go for the latter. Um, I think it's I think there's a, another way to look at it um, in that. In that context of rent versus buy, I think the the way that we might look at it instead is who is paying for it, not yeah. me, the customer. But I, I'm a customer. I might buy a chunk of storage and use it for three years and write it off over a three-year cycle, mm-hmm. and it'll cost an amount. Or I could say to someone, I want to buy that as a service. Um, I'm going to use it on and off over the course of a certain amount of years. Um, that person who buys it and sells it to me as a service still has to cover the cost of buying it and operating it, same way that I would have to. But he also has to make a margin on it. Yep. If he wants to be fiscally responsible, <laughs> which not everybody is. <laughs> but he wants to be fiscally responsible and make profit. And the only way that he can do that is by leveraging economies of scale to make the initial purchase cost lower yes. or make the lease cost lower or the lease terms more attractive or whatever it will be. But there's still only notionally a marginal profit in there. So for storage in particular, it's a real challenge because storage costs are pretty much rock bottom anyway. There isn't a lot of downward movement there for someone to sell storage as a service as an easy thing certainly at the scale that we require it in uh, the the VFX industry. Compute cycles, another matter, um, where Kit is sitting not computing something for one customer, it can easily be turned on for an hour or two hours for a customer and turned off again. So there is a some churn there. There is the availability of spare resource to sell. So in theory, you can make a margin on that. And you can put your margins notionally higher for the convenience. And hopefully at the end of the three-year cycle for that person who's selling that as a service, they will make a profit. But for me, the person who's buying that service, I don't want it all the time. So I'm prepared to pay a little bit more for the time that I do have it. Yeah. And that makes sense. That As a business model, that yes, it makes does. sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, that, again, that's interesting. That's a... Thank you for that. So, a sort of a, a more nuanced uh, analysis of the sort of buy versus rent position that we're in with some of this technology. Um, well, I think we probably need to move towards wrapping things up, Peter. So, stepping away from the render a little bit, um, because um, I mean, I'm mindful that you you actually do have a job you have to go back to, so you can't you can't you can't sit here and talk to me all day. Um, but um, but um, stepping away from the, the specifics of rendering and your render pipeline, what um, 
let's talk about the future. I mean, we've we've been in some very very strange times recently, COVID nineteen, and I'm sure you have lots of people working remotely, and we've done lots of lots of um, podcast episodes about remote working technology. So we we perhaps don't need to cover that. But you had lots of interesting insights in terms of the the nature of the business you, that you guys are working in, the types of projects. How do you see the future of um, the VFX and potentially the other areas you work in for games, other parts of media and entertainment. How do you see the future of that over the next, I don't know, 12 months, let's say, given what we've been through uh, for the for the last four months or so here? Uh, we're shaking the magic eight ball to see what comes up. Um, we are. Axis, first of all, was about three weeks ahead of the Scottish government in terms of the the business advice and so forth, we had pretty much sent everybody home and were done and dusted before the Scottish government locked, you uh, down. locked it down. For us, 50% or more of our people come from outside the UK. So they have contact with people in Italy, France, Spain, Germany, China. Take your pick. We have clients in China. We had to cancel various on-site visits to China in the last four months. We just couldn't do it. Um, in those circumstances, it made sense for us to to get ahead of the curve and try and keep our people safe and trying to deal with the remote working challenges as early as we could. Um, what it has done for us is meant that we have kept things safe and believe it or not, access has actually grown. Um, we now have, we have, let's say 200, and, for argument's sake, call it 220 seats in Glasgow. It's more than that, but 220. Yeah, um, I know that right now we have 266 people working off site. So we now have more people working in the Glasgow office than we have places to put them in the Glasgow office. So there's about a 20, 25% growth thing has happened during this. What it's done for us though, realistically, is it's taken away the arguments that we might have heard a year ago when we were saying we would like to recruit an artist for example, and that artist might be in Spain, but he's not hes not amenable to giving up wonderful Spanish climate and coming to Glasgow. Um, and the, the pushback against hiring that person would have been, oh, but I really need to have the artist on site so that I can talk to them and give them direction and see what they're working on. Yeah, yeah. Fast forward to now, a year later, there's a change in attitude uh, around about remote working. Now, I know that this will not be the same for everyone, particularly if you're working under uh, TPN levels of security. But there is a, now a change in mindset somewhat that uh, remote working is not only a possibility, but something that we want to discourage. But remote working is now actually quite a desirable thing because it allows us to actually reach out and find artists of talented people, engage with them, have them working, um, but without necessarily incurring some of the wider overhead costs with changing location. Now, I know that runs counter to a lot of the big players in the VFX industry who move from location to location in search of tax breaks um, or who are running uh, under TPN security and therefore can't really have remote working unless their clients are prepared to make exceptions. And strangely enough, we were looking at getting TPN audited in March of 2020, and that had to get put on hold. But 
the COVID scenario has given us this notion of a much more global workspace. Um, the idea that remote working is not something to be discouraged, but actually something to be embraced, something to be looked at as a positive so that we can have more people on projects as and when we need them. Um, to, so to me, that's the kind of silver lining in that. Yeah, and we've definitely cloud. seen, you know, in our other conversations on the podcast, actually, we've had uh, we've had other studios have said, you know, they've, they've actually found that people work, they work longer and better, actually. Um, those two things don't necessarily go together, but um, uh, and, and may have to be taken independently. But sometimes people work longer hours if they need to, and sometimes people work better um, uh, from a home position. So actually, I think they've it's been proved that you know there is no no loss of quality there i think um so on the personnel side um i mean probably actually you have to encourage people to make sure they do um respect you know good working practices in terms of taking breaks and looking after their, their kind Indeed. of sort of mental and physical health and all that stuff obviously but um um uh, but um but on, what about on the client side i mean obviously you've got you you spoke to you know not seeing clients in person uh, where you perhaps intended to when the lockdown struck and that will presumably persist for some time and international clients may not even if they can travel they may not feel comfortable doing so so you know do you feel or how do you feel that will that will impact things going forward over the next 12 months it, it doesn't sound like you you see a, a downside really I don't see a downside necessarily from a business context and in fact a couple of months ago we had, our, we had Chinese clients coming to us and mm. asking us if we could take on more work um, which we weren't able to do so because we just didn't have the the brains, people, resources, all the rest of it. Um, but the the client focus, I think clients have, have been realistic about this where they can be. Um, for us, in terms of our, we spoke about our mix, the, the mix that Axis has in terms of film, television, games, all the different strands that Axis has. Also within that mix is geographic location. Uh, I would say that in the last six years, Axis has moved from about 60% of client focus being within the UK. In fact, probably it's more than the last five years because we were able to ride out the 2008 depression quite well. Um, but on any given year, it might be as much as 85% of our revenue comes from outside the UK. Yeah, okay. So we've already been playing in an international space. We've been doing it for quite some time. Uh, we don't really have a, an axe to grind other than, yes, it does make it difficult for client-side visits. It makes it really difficult to deliver um high security pieces out to Shenzhen and China. Yes. Uh, this kind of thing becomes challenging, but other than that, it hasn't really been a, uh, a big problem yet. I'm not naive enough to think that it can last forever like this, but um, I do see yeah. challenges that still remain. One of which would be, how can we deal with 10-bit high-range color in a remote working context? Uh, uh, that's that old chestnut. We've had a few conversations about that on the podcast before. Yeah, I think there, there are aspects of the workflow, aren't there, that are difficult to manage remotely. Yep. Um, yep. There are some tools available for, for, for that, you know, which I'm sure you're looking at. But um, as you say, it's there are these bits of the workflow that don't net, easily fit into a remote working um, setup. But um, but they they aren't the larger part of the workflow, I guess. So um, you can still manage your business relatively well under the current circumstances. 
Yeah, I think from point of view of technology, I think the the notion which we had of building a hyper-converged, a next-generation hyper-converged studio in Los Angeles, um, that's now no longer a, hey, wouldn't it be great if we had that technology and went and invested in it? Um, we will quite likely do so. And one of the, the next stepping stones from that for us is going to be geolocation of virtual studios. So virtual studio hubs in specific areas. If we use AWS as a, by the way, example, but it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. them. Um, AWS, I believe, have a data center out in Frankfurt. So geolocating a partial studio and assembling a team around about Frankfurt with minimal latency into that AWS facility, that starts to look like a much more realistic yes, thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's, um, I mean, you know, uh, I don't want to scare you, Peter, but there might be another podcast episode in that, you know, (laughs) 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 virtual remote studios. Um, but, um, it is interesting to hear you say that. I think there's, um, there's again, something we've, we've heard one or two other, uh, sort of our partners talk about. Um, yeah, I think we are, we are extremely lucky that we work in this sector and that technology comprises such a big part of what we do and is so flexible. Uh, to allow businesses to still operate. Um, you know, I mean, Escape Technology has obviously had a challenging few months like every other business, but, you know, a- again, we, we've benefited from some of the things that you're talking about. So um, I think that probably um, brings us to a natural end point, actually. So yeah. that's been, um, Peter, that's been really, really fascinating, really insightful. I, 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 I had every expectation that it would be an interesting conversation given the, your uh, your the fact that you're such a, a seasoned pro and and have a view on technical and commercial matters, um, you know, combined. So thank you very very much for joining us. No worries. Thank you for being so candid with um, some of the information surrounding how and and what Axis do um, with their technology and projects. And um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. So thank you. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in any of the topics or technology covered in this discussion, please don't hesitate to get in touch using the information below this link or send us an email using info at escape-technology.com. We hope you enjoyed listening. See you next time.